Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. So welcome everyone. Um, tonight I'm going to continue something I began last Wednesday. And it's a, one of the more important themes in mindfulness or awareness practice. And uh, it's important because understanding the role of feeling, and when we use the word feeling or Vedana as the Pali word, it has a technical definition. We're really talking about the pleasantness, unpleasantness, or neutrality of any moment's experience. And it's a, an essential thing for a human being to understand. Because if we don't notice feeling, we often take roads that get us in a lot of trouble. And I thought of a pretty graphic example of this. Um, I hope you don't mind. But uh, as I, no one could have missed, whenever that was when uh, Bill Clinton, our president, got in trouble uh, with his sexual relationship with Monica Lewinsky. I remember I, I went, I missed most of it, thankfully, because I was on retreat for three months during the impeachment um, proceeding. But I remember in August, right before I left for retreat, somehow a report came out from some of the testimony where one day Monica Lewinsky, evidently, I think this is what I remember, showed part of her underwear to Bill Clinton and somehow that set in motion some sexual interaction that they had shortly after that. And I think it's a really powerful example because as people, and I'm assuming all of us in this room are interested in the human heart and the human mind and how suffering arises, how we end up doing things that create suffering for ourselves and others and how we can live in a way where we're not creating suffering for ourselves and others. It's interesting to reflect on uh, how the mind experiences experience. So I'm just sort of seeing what happened, you know, in hindsight, and looking at that, you can just see somebody, the president, sees something that, given how his mind was conditioned, this was an attractive thing, I'm assuming. So we see something that's pleasant, and what do we do when we see something that's pleasant? Well, we generally fixate on it, create a story like, wouldn't it be nice if, or something like that. And uh, that, that image, right, which starts to have a life of its own because it's being fed by some story that's repeated in the mind, wouldn't it be nice if. And then you have that visual image, and then you have the story again, wouldn't it be nice if. Well, that sets in motion some choices, like it's nice being around this person. It's nice being alone with this person. Maybe it would be nice to touch this person, and on and on. Now, I'm not trying to pass judgment on either one of them, but clearly a, a lot of people suffered. I'm assuming they also suffered quite a bit because of this whole, the way this whole thing unfolded. Certainly other people suffered. And it's an example of how something seemingly small, like seeing something that triggers attachment, something pleasant that triggers attachment, if we're not mindful, 
it sets in motion a whole series of choices and decisions that can lead to a lot of suffering. Now, we can just speculate or imagine uh, Bill Clinton being very mindful in that moment and saying, you know, it's just purple. It's just, it's just what it is. It's just material. That's all it was. And it's actually possible to see that, or even if he didn't catch it that early, right? Let's say his mindfulness didn't kick in until already he saw the purple and he, he, his mind perceived, oh, this is underwear. And uh, I, I'm, I don't know if it's true for women as much as it is for men, but a certain proportion of the men, uh, in this culture at least, you know, we have been imprinted to be attracted to female underwear. It's just how it is. And uh, so the story starts spinning. And uh, maybe even later the mindfulness could have kicked in like, oh, this is lust. Lust is like this. And that could have allowed some space to enter his mind. Oh, it's just lust. Lust feels like this. I know lust. And it's like this. Can this be okay? Meaning, can this feeling of lust be alive in me? So we're not repressing the lust. Can it be alive in me without it affecting the choices that I make? Just because we're feeling alive with lust doesn't mean we need to attack somebody. Doesn't mean we need to flirt with somebody. Doesn't mean we need to do anything except be with the feeling of lust in the mind and body. But I'm assuming mindfulness didn't kick in, you know, and with, without mindfulness, in a way, we are like robots in the sense that the, what controls the behavior, the choices, is our conditioning. The conditioning takes over, and one thing leads to another in a somewhat predictable way, and we end up acting out our habits, and some of our habits are not so skillful. Maybe most of our habits aren't very skillful, and uh, and then we have what the kind of world we have. So this is why there's such a big emphasis on, uh, in Buddhist practice especially, on human beings getting interested in the experience of pleasantness and unpleasantness, so that we don't have to simply follow our conditioning around pleasant and unpleasant experience, and neutral experience for that matter, but instead we can know there's pleasantness or we can know there's unpleasantness or we can know there's neutral experience, and then there's a choice. It's like we know it's neutral or we know it's pleasant, and then we have a choice to either respond with our conditioning, whatever the force of our conditioning is compelling us to respond, or we can just feel that compulsion and respond in another way. We don't actually have to act out our conditioning if it's not skillful. I mean, just think about how many times we have unskillful impulses that we don't act out. So this is not some radically new principle. This is something all human beings are already working with. The question is, can we uh, consciously, systematically get wise about this process of understanding that how choices can arise in our life as opposed to blindness or this sort of acting 
out of compulsion, acting blindly out our conditioning. So, uh, the context of this subject matter of, of mindfulness of feeling, or feeling tone, sometimes we say, or mindfulness of pleasantness, unpleasantness, and neutrality, it's in the context of studying right mindfulness. And right mindfulness is one of the eight steps in the Buddha's Eightfold Path. And that's what we've been talking about all year long. So for there are a few of you who haven't been around much, or maybe even new tonight, so we're spending most of this year uh, with the subject matter of the Eightfold Path, and we just happen to be on mindfulness, which is the sixth. Is it the sixth? Let's see. We have the seventh of the Eightfold Path. No, it has to be the sixth because we have concentration. Oh yeah, seventh. Thanks. <laughs> so it's the seventh of the Eightfold Path, and. Um, one way to look at mindfulness is in terms of the four foundations. So these are four uh, places that we want to establish strong tendency to be awake. We want to be awake to the body, which means the five physical senses. So the, the physical experience of the breath moving in the body, or the air touching the skin, sounds, smells, tastes, and sights. So the, this is body. That's the first of the four foundations. The second is feeling. In fact, the next three, including feeling, are part of mentality. So the first is physicality, which are the five physical senses. And then three aspects of the mind. Feeling, tone, that I've been talking about. And then in the weeks to come, we'll talk about mind. So how is the mind being colored in any moment? Is greed present in coloring the mind? Is kindness present in coloring the mind? Is aversion present? Is generosity present? So it's the different colorings. Or, uh, yeah, that's a good way to say it. What's, what is the filter through which we're experiencing everything? And then the, third, or the fourth foundation, it's also part of the mind. And it's a specific part of the mind. So we're discerning one way to think about it is discerning the skillfulness or the unskillfulness of what's present in the mind. So it's not just noticing that greed is present in the mind, but it's actually discerning that greed in the mind is leading to attachment, to clinging, to grasping, to suffering. So it's really getting there's greed and it leads to suffering, or there's mindfulness and it leads to letting go and happiness. So we're really understanding the skillfulness or unskillfulness of various mind states. That's the fourth foundation. So again, the four foundations, body, the five physical senses, feeling tone, a mind, which the colorings of the mind, which the, what are the filters in the mind right now in the present moment, and discerning the skillfulness or unskillfulness of what's present in the mind. So we're talking about feelings now. And last week I talked about feelings mostly in terms of dependent origination. And this is another central theme in the Buddhist teachings. And I'm just going to review it quickly because it's so important. And then it will give some context to what I'm going to talk about later. So the reason that feeling is such an important place to pay attention is as the Buddha looked at his own mind, and other men and women throughout history have looked at their own minds, what they find is that 
there are particularly potent places where we can unhook from cycles of creating suffering, stress in the mind. Because some things just happen automatically. I mean, once we have a body and mind, we can't help but having sense contact, right? As long as I'm alive and conscious, I'm having sense contact. I'm inundated with sense contact. Seeing, hearing. Like when we began our sit tonight and I suggested that people just notice the experience of hearing, you might have noticed that you're not actually having to do anything to hear. As long as we're conscious and, and not getting absorbed in thought, hearing just happens. I mean, just try now not to hear my voice. Is anybody capable of not hearing my voice? We can't stop ourselves from hearing when we're awake. So once we have a mind and body, there's sense contact. And once there's sense contact, you know, there's perception. And right with perception, unavoidable, non, we can't stop it, is the experience of feeling tone. So when some people hear my voice, maybe just because of the way you've been conditioned, you hear my voice and there's, it's unpleasant. You know, maybe it sounds a little like too much nasal or maybe it's too loud or maybe there's a sort of a sense of it being arrogant. And there's a reaction, ah. Oh, you may not even be conscious of it, but just the feeling, this is unpleasant. And some conscious or not conscious feeling of withdrawing from the experience or maybe wanting to strike out at the experience, you know, like get up and leave or something. Maybe for other people, it's really a pleasant experience to hear the sound of this voice. But whatever it is for you, pleasant, neutral, or unpleasant, that's already has been set in motion depending on how your mind's been conditioned. It's the same thing, you know, if I brought out a certain type of food. You know, I always use the example of caviar because some people really like caviar and other people don't want to eat fish eggs. And, uh, but it's the same food. It has the same smell, the same texture, but it's a very different experience if you put it in front of different people. So we see that the feeling tone of any experience arises uh, based on what's been set in motion, based on conditioning. And there's, and there's nothing we can do about it. You go home and see your pet, you're gonna, it's going to have a feeling tone. You can't change that. You can't decide to have a different feeling tone when you go home and see your pet. So. We have a mind and body, you know, we have consciousness, we have a mind and body, we have sense contact, we have feeling. Now, at that point, actually, there's a, there's a choice here. If there's no mindfulness and we have feeling, then we're just on automatic pilot. Like I just mentioned a few minutes ago, if we're not mindful and we see something really pleasant and then we're going to start to cling. The mind will fixate, identify, and cling, get attached to that pleasant experience, and start to grasp, crave something. And that craving sets something in motion. In Buddhism, we call this becoming. We want to become the person who gets to touch Monica Lewinsky, or we want to become the person 
who wants to eat the caviar. Or we want to become the person who wants to push the caviar away, to get away from the smell or the sight. So this is inevitable without mindfulness. Feeling, which is inevitable, can't be stopped. Every experience has a feeling tone. It's either pleasant, unpleasant, or, or we're not clear if it's pleasant or unpleasant. Every single moment, every single experience, and every moment. I mean, just think about how many different experiences we're having right now. We're having tactile experience, many. We're having many auditory experiences, visual experiences, probably a lot of images and thoughts, so that's all experience. And every one of those experiences has a feeling tone of pleasantness, neutrality, or unpleasantness. And with every one of those feeling tones, there is a tendency to either get attached if it's pleasant, to be aversive if it's unpleasant, or to ignore it if it's neutral. That's what we do without mindfulness. And any one of those three reactive tendencies, they unavoidably lead to grasping, becoming, and stress and suffering. And you can just, don't take my word for it, follow it in your own mind. Like notice when you see something attractive, like let's say while you were sitting tonight, you had an, uh, you imagined something in the future that's really pleasant, like a vacation or going to bed tonight. And you imagined it, and just the image in the mind, just the memory or thought in the mind was pleasant. And so, because it's pleasant, you want, you want it to linger, right? And that's like an energetic leaning forward. Ah, going to sleep, that will be so nice, I am tired. And so you have that leaning forward, and then the mind doesn't want to let the thought do what it normally does, which is it arises and it passes away. But because it's pleasant, we don't want it to pass away. So as the thought's passing away, there's grasping. And the grasping leads to, let's think that thought again. Let's put up that image, that thought, repeat it. But it, we've got to kind of make that happen because uh, there's a lot of other things going on. And so the mind grasps, it inserts, I want to be that person who has that thought again. And we imagine our bed, and we imagine sleeping, or watching our favorite show, or eating our favorite food in bed. And, and then we have to keep sort of regenerating that. And if you look carefully, you'll see that that is suffering. It's really a burden in the mind, in the heart. For me, I notice uh, not so much anymore because we found a space. Or we hope it will end up being our space. But I used to think, when we thought we could stay in this building, about renovating it. And so for many years, in the 90s, when we still thought we could stay here, before we found out that we can't stay here because of building and uh, city regulations. Um, whenever I wasn't careful, you know, the thought would come into my mind, oh, wouldn't it be nice if the stairwell wasn't in this room, but somewhere else in the building, and the room could be bigger? And that was a pleasant thought, you know, having a bigger room. And then the mind would like that. Oh, well, maybe we, and then it would just keep going. And after a few minutes, it was like this huge burden in my mind because I had totally renovated the whole building. And then I had all this like thought, well, how are we going to pay for it? <laughs> and what are we going to do when we're renovating it? And then eventually, 
I realized this is suffering. This hurts. This is a burden. And it's completely extra. It like doesn't have anything to do with what's going on right now. And then the whole house of cards can collapse. The mind lets go of all of that. But every time we do that, we're sort of setting in motion, we're reinforcing this process. Pleasantness leads to craving, leads to grasping, becoming, and suffering. Or unpleasantness leads to aversion, leads to craving the absence or the getting rid of that, to becoming the person who doesn't have that, to uh, stress and suffering. And the same with ignoring. Because even ignoring, when there's neutral experience, just not paying attention because we don't think it's important, because it's not pleasant or unpleasant, or we don't think it's pleasant or unpleasant, even the ignoring of neutral experience is a burden. Because not paying attention, not being intimate, actually, we have to work at being numb. We have to work at not feeling the body. For, experience, uh, for example, Right now, we're all wearing clothes, and our clothes are touching our skin. And we can feel the clothes touching the skin, and we can feel the air touching the skin where there aren't any clothes. But how much of the time are we actually aware of the body, or feeling the buttocks pressing against the chair or cushion? We're mostly assuming it's not important, it's neutral, it doesn't matter. And so we don't live in our body, we don't live we're not actually awake to that aspect of life. And actually, we have to work at not knowing that. We have to actively repress the experience of sensation, the knowing of that experience. It's stressful, believe it or not, because it seems like it's hard work to pay attention to the body, but believe it or not, it's only hard work because it's not our habit. It's actually stressful not to be intimate with the body and not to be intimate with the mind. And we find this, the more we practice mindfulness, the more it starts having its own momentum because it's actually the easy way. Being vividly present to the body, even when we don't have to, even when it's not strongly pleasant or unpleasant, is the easy way. Being awake to all that activity in the mind, the different impulses, the thoughts, the images, is actually the natural way. But because of our habits of attachment and aversion, it's exhausting to be aware of the body because we feel like we have to react to every unpleasant sensation with ooh, and every pleasant sensation with ah, and the same with the mind. And you, you can imagine how messed up we would be if we actually were sensitive to the mind and body and then reacted to every single experience. It would be overwhelming. So what we do is we choose to numb out 99% of what's going out, going on and just pay attention to things that are very strongly, clearly pleasant and things that are very strongly, clearly unpleasant. And we ignore everything else in life. And then we feel like life is hollow and like we don't understand it. And it's be literally because we have 
through a process of conditioning, removed ourselves from the experience of being alive and exclusively focusing on just the things that are strongly pleasant and unpleasant and reacting to those things in very predictable ways, which is grasping, attaching and grasping to the pleasant and being aversive and pushing away the unpleasant. So that's why, you know, one way we refer to the way the Buddha suggested that we, we live as human beings, we refer to this uh, set of teachings and this way of living as the, a path of awakening. So we're moving from a path, from a way of being numb and reactive to a way of being very alive, very awake to all that's happening physically, mentally, but non-reactive, so equanimous. So we're, there's a, uh, I think this word is okay to use, hypersensitivity. It's hyper-energetic. So mindfulness practice, some people think it's like we're moving into this sort of trance-like passive state. That is not the direction of practice. It's exactly the opposite. So if you're getting a lot of passive trance-like states in your meditation practice, you're going in the wrong direction. Now, it doesn't mean that tranquility doesn't arise, but the tranquility in practice should be balanced with a deepening sensitivity, uh, a vibrant uh, wakefulness, a real precision and sensitivity. So there's both a sense of ease and relaxation, but that ease and relaxation is the equanimity or the acceptance path of what we're developing. But right with that is a, a very keen, very alive, vibrant brightness in the heart and mind. So both of those qualities are important. So think about this in this week's practice, the, the, the sort of two extremes, I guess we could think of it, like a life of, uh, of uh, sort of numbness, not really being there, just noticing the highlights, the very extreme pleasants and the unpleasants in any moment, and reacting to them. So that path versus a path of being of developing more and more sensitivity, intimacy, vivid presence, and this wisdom of equanimity or, or this wisdom of non-reactivity. So those two things in balance. We need an imbalance. So often it will slide out of balance. Like we'll have the sensitivity, we'll be intimate, but we won't have the wisdom of non-reactivity or equanimity, of just letting things be. And then then it's really hard because it's like we're there, but we're just reacting to everything. We're, we might have a lot of feelings of vulnerability or a lot of like, uh, sometimes people in their practice when it gets out of balance, they're like get really hyped up and they just want to keep doing so many things. You get this uh, sometimes when people go on retreats, meditation retreats, they've been away for a week on pra doing practice and they come back and they've got all this, uh, this sensitivity and they just start wanting to make everything perfect and they drive people crazy. Or if our practice goes, uh, gets developed more on the tranquility side and there's just a sense of ease and uh, but not so much of this brightness, 
then there's just what happens is we tend to slide into these trance states that I was talking about, sort of pleasant holding zones for the mind. And it's just like this kind of pleasant ooze. And we just sit there, but we don't learn anything. And it's like relatively harmless, but there's no learning, no insight involved. So we want to be aware of that and keep the mind in balance. And this, uh, this, uh, this teaching on feeling can really help us because it gives the mind, uh, it helps the mind understand how the path unfolds. What we're learning is that every moment there's a predominant experience and that predominant experience is either pleasant, neutral, or unpleasant. In my practice, in terms of a human being who wants not to suffer, wants to be free in life, my practice is to be really awake, really intimate with what's predominant in the moment, really noticing it and noticing whether it's pleasant or unpleasant or neutral and just letting it be what it is. And then whatever my response to that experience is, because we will respond, it's not about being passive, the response won't be due to automatic pilot. We'll respond to that experience, whether it's pleasant, unpleasant or neutral, based on what appears to be wisest for us, for the world, not based on our primitive conditioning, which is, if it's good, we grab a hold of it. If it's bad, we push it away. And if it's neutral, we don't pay attention. Because there are a lot of things that are neutral that are good to pay attention to. And there are a lot of things that are unpleasant that are good to stay around. Like, for example, meditation practice is often unpleasant. But it's really good to stay, stick around, to keep doing it. But if we just based it on our primitive conditioning, who's going to want to spend 30, 45 minutes, 60 minutes a day sitting? When you could be playing a video game or reading the New York Times or, you know, going to a nice restaurant or whatever else you might be doing with your time. And there are a lot of pleasant things that aren't good to take a hold of. I mean, it's nice. You know, there's a lot of things that are nice. You know, we could ingest all kinds of chemicals that are produce temporary pleasant experiences. But do they lead anywhere? You know, we could have a lot of meaningless sex. But does it lead anywhere? We could keep eating pleasant food, but does it lead anywhere? We could constantly be looking for something interesting on the radio or on TV, but does it lead anywhere to any lasting happiness? So as human beings, we constantly have to see, oh, this is pleasant, but I'm not going to go there. So we let go of something that's temporary, temporarily pleasant for something that is more has a sort of more resonant pleasantness to it, or a longer-term pleasantness to it, which is a mind or heart that doesn't cling. And this is really the essence of the of the path, which is if we're constantly reacting to the pleasant and the unpleasantness of any moment we miss this other option, which is the option the Buddha suggests that we check out, which is 
cultivating a mind that doesn't cling as the path of real happiness, a mind that doesn't cling to anything. So the question is, should we spend our life looking for pleasant and avoiding unpleasant, which seems that's what we could call sort of how human beings and other animals have been either instinctually or through education conditioned to act. Go for the pleasant, get away from the unpleasant. And there's real limits to that, but nobody's saying that there aren't temporary benefits to that strategy. Okay? So I'm not saying there aren't temporary benefits. I'm just saying that in the end, it doesn't really get us anywhere. We still get old, we still die, we still lose things that we love, care about, and we still don't actually have much control. We have some control, but it's limited. We could have had a really nice landscape, beautiful yard, and then I heard a week and a half ago, I have some friends, people who practice here that live in Northfield, and they had baseball and even softball-sized hail. You could have spent a lot of years making your garden really attached to having that beautiful place to sit, and then it just disappears in the matter of you know 15, 20 minutes. And if your happiness was dependent on that nice garden, then guaranteed suffering will arise when it disappears. So that path is limited. Now you should check that out and see if that's actually true. The Buddha definitely emphasizes this point, that the path of seeking what's pleasant, seeking to get away with what is unpleasant, ignoring what's neutral, that is limited doesn't lead to lasting or any kind of satisfying happiness. And what he suggests, and this is something we can check out in our practice, cultivating a heart or mind that doesn't cling. So generally we'd refer to this as equanimity or the wisdom of non-clinging, the wisdom of non-attachment, leads to happiness regardless of the particular conditions of our life. It leads to what, not just wisdom of non-clinging, but when we're not clinging, when we're not completely devoted to getting what's good and getting away from what's bad, then it frees up our life to do what? What does a human being do when it's not seeking what's pleasant and avoiding what's unpleasant? What does a human being do? Think about that for a moment. Like, imagine your heart not fixated on what's pleasant, getting what's pleasant, and avoiding what's unpleasant. What could you do with your life energy? What's left? Any thoughts? To be. Mm-hmm. To be? Mm-hmm. David? Mm-hmm. And what would come out of that that being or experience in the moment in its fullest? So you're just there, like right now, right? We're here in this room. We can just be not clinging, like trying to really understand what Mark's saying, not pushing anything away, but just being, not ignoring the neutral sensations, the neutral experience. 
where it arises. Marianne? Freedom, liberation. Yeah. And what do we do with that freedom? Because freedom is like a joy. What does the heart, mind, body want to do with joy? Hmm? Share it. Yeah. yeah. And it's not because we're trying to be nice. It's the only thing left for a human being. When there's that that being and that, that joy of that liberation, the freedom of just being, that and that energy is just raw. I mean, that joy is just raw energy. And then it's going to express itself in the only avenues that are left. And all the self-centered greed, anger, and delusion avenues, we're not going down anymore, right? So the only thing that's left in Tibetan Buddhism, they call it unstoppable compassionate action. It can't be stopped. Because as uh, living beings, we are going to do. There's no such thing as non-engaged humanness. We are going to engage life. It's just a question if we do it with wisdom or ignorance. You know, with understanding or not understanding the way it is, how it is. So this is what we start to see in moments in our life, when in moments when we're just being, just living awake fully and experiencing the natural joy. And you know what that joy is? It's the natural energy when the mind isn't weighed down by self-centeredness, self-centered drama, self-centered aversion and greed. There's just that natural joy of liberation or freedom from greed, anger and delusion. And it will express itself. It can't not be expressed. And it's really beautiful to see in ourselves. It's beautiful to see in other human beings. It's really beautiful to see these people or in our own life these moments when we are just moved and we may do something silly. It may be even inappropriate, but the intention will be pure. And in that way, it will be a pure act, even if it lacked like uh, knowing the right way to say something or the right way to do something. But the intention will be beautiful. And people around us will appreciate what we do, even if it is a mess. And I'm sure you've seen this arise. Um, this is not something that arises only in people who are fully, completely enlightened, whatever that means. It happens in all of us in moments. And the question is, we can use the teachings of the Buddha or this, this model that human beings have been working with now for a long time to better understand this process. Because we're already doing this process, like I've said before. The the usefulness of these teachings and this practice is to get really clear so it's not just something we stumble upon but it's something that we're consciously systematically cultivating in our life that's why we have something called meditation practice and we have something called daily life practice because we're trying to consciously remember to be interested in feeling the feeling of pleasantness unpleasantness and neutrality so we can see what works and what doesn't work, how reacting doesn't really go anywhere. And cultivating a way of feeling the pleasantness so we're not numbing out, we're not like ignoring how pleasant it is to eat Ben and Jerry's ice cream or how unpleasant it is to be insulted. We're not ignoring that or repressing any of that. We're fully, completely awake to it, but we're 
noticing the impulse to react without reacting. So we're feeling the impulse. It's very much alive in the moment, but we're choosing to feel it without reacting to it. And that's our practice. That's our homework this week. And we're going to move into mind, uh, mindfulness of the mind. And of course, these different foundations or different establishments of mindfulness are completely overlapping. So you will really see how having a pleasant, uh, seeing a pleasantness in the moment is very much related to seeing greed in the mind, right? How, how uh, often they arise at the same time. There's pleasantness and then there's the wanting it and they come up together. So that's more the angle we'll start talking about for the next couple of weeks, or the different flavors or filters or colorings of the mind. But this week, if you can, it would be nice like every morning, you might want this on your bedstand, nightstand, to remind yourself, okay, Mark, my intention today is to learn something about how the mind relates or reacts to feeling tone in a way that I haven't seen before. I want to learn something today. The different feeling tones. At first I just want to notice the feeling tones and then I want to notice what arises when I see pleasantness or experience pleasantness. What arises when I experience unpleasantness. What arises when I'm in the middle of a neutral experience. Okay? So I want to leave some time so we have can hear from people in the group tonight. Everybody, of course, for many decades has been experiencing lots of pleasantness and unpleasantness and neutrality. I'm sure you've made lots of messes and maybe have had some real insights along the way too. All of that would be good to share with the group as well as any questions that you have about the talk tonight or whatever else seems relevant. So who would like to begin? Mm-hmm. And it needs to be really loud because it's got to get around this corner. Just where I'm at in my life right now, I'm um, kind of attached to my financial situation and in particular having a house that I own refinanced. I'm really attached to that money being available so I can temporarily get myself out of the situation I'm in. And the clothing just keeps getting, you know, tomorrow, 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 tomorrow. And I've done everything things on my end that I need to do, documents, whatever, I, whatever my broker needs to give to her, and then I'm in a position where, okay, now what do I do? It's, it's out of my hands. It's just really, I can't sleep. That's a lot of energy. Yeah. So this is a, a really good example. I, I appreciate that you're willing to share it because although our predicament may be different, I think we can all relate. So the, the question is, what is it, you know, in general, what is it that's predominant? What is the predominant experience about this predicament you're in? So it's not the story that you need to refinance your home because you got to deal with a financial issue. But what's the actual experience? Good. Good. So the feeling of not being in control, or you said powerlessness, 
So it, I, this is an obvious question, but let's ask it anyway. Is that pleasant or unpleasant? Yeah. So then when that... So there's a feeling of powerlessness, and then it's unpleasant. So these things arise together probably many times during the day. And then when the feeling of powerlessness and the unpleasantness is in the mind, what is the habit? What is the, the strong tendency to do? Worry. Yeah. So it sets in motion worrying, which is it's kind of like maybe imagining, it's both probably greed and aversion, so sometimes you're probably, I'm guessing, imagining it all working out and kind of leaning and like really wanting that and sometimes maybe being afraid it's all going to fall apart and then worry and then sort of fearing, oh, that can't happen, that's no good. So there's a third option, that's what the, the Buddha is saying. There's another possibility which is to be really intimate with the powerlessness and the unpleasantness of the powerlessness. That means we're actually learning to go beneath the story right into the, it's almost a, like a subtle uh, physical experience of that. It's almost, it could be like nausea or a tightness in the chest or a tightness in the throat or wherever you feel it, in the gut. And you're trying to find the, the place of greatest intensity and be intimate with it and non-reactive to it. Because it's bad enough you're in this difficult situation. But the question is, does it do any good? Does it, does it uh, speed up the broker or the mortgage person to worry about it? Yeah, exactly. So she may be less inclined to hurry this thing along. So so the worrying doesn't do any good. All it does is perpetuate stress and suffering in the mind, in the heart. And the only way not to worry, the only option for not worrying, is actually to be willing to feel what it feels like to be vulnerable to the fact that life is not governable. Often life is not governable. It's just how it is. There is Insecurity or vulnerability is woven into, into human existence, to, to any existence probably. And the question is, are we going to live in alignment with that truth or are we going to try to avoid that truth? And it's exhausting and stressful to try to avoid that truth. So now it's front and center in your life given these particular circumstances you're in. And so you might as well do your best and it won't be easy because this is a pretty intense situation. But just do your best to not run from that feeling into worrying, but just to notice what it feels like. And what can be helpful is to name it. So as you're learning to feel it in the body, then just name it, ah. You know, whatever that feeling is, like if it's queasiness, queasiness is like this. Or nausea is like this. Or tightness is like this. You know, just keep naming it and see it as a natural phenomena, a natural unpleasant phenomena. But don't judge it as good or bad, it's just what it is. So we're, we're cultivating equanimity or an impartiality. It's like this, and this is what allows for equanimity. It won't always be this way. Guaranteed, it will change. Now it's just a question of time, and it may get worse before it gets better. But it won't be constant. That we know. And so this patience, it isn't like a, 
uh, kind of a tensing endurance. It's more of a wisdom like, this will change. Can this be okay? It's like this now, but it will change. And, and just keep infusing this understanding that <clears throat> given the way that it is, it can't be other than this. This uncertainty can't be different than it is right now. Given causes and conditions of this life, it can't be different. And does it do any good to resist how it is? It doesn't do any good. Good luck. Other questions or comments that you'd like to share? Examples from your own practice that you think are relevant? Judy. Um, I have a lot of frustration because I can't seem to um, name the or describe the feeling. So just as kind of an example, um, I think I did notice last week um, I was hungry, but I didn't really want to eat a lot because it was late in the evening. And so I was trying to feel like, okay, what what's the feeling of hunger? And, you know, it's kind of this, um, uh, I don't know. I mean, it's like, I feel like, what's the feeling of hunger like, big blank, you know? And it's like, well, <laughs> you know, I just seem like have, then I was just frustrated because I don't feel like I have a, a sense of or, I just don't know how to know what I'm feeling or something. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it's, a, it's another excellent question. And this really points out our... Um, we, we don't have, in a sense, we don't have the vocabulary to understand our experience. We're so, we're so, uh, so much beginners at actually being present that we don't know. Now, I don't mean like a vocabulary in the sense of being able to name it, although that can be helpful. But just knowing how to see it or knowing how to know it is really the question. And uh, it's just because we're not in the habit of feeling. So one, so you can use some language to help investigate. Like you can ask the question, what is it about this moment's experience that's telling me I'm hungry? Like, how is it that the mind has come to the conclusion that I'm hungry? What is the evidence that the mind used to come to that conclusion? And it's not like we're judging the conclusion the mind came to. We simply want to understand how it is, like how we came to this decision that I want to go eat a bologna sandwich. And uh, so we just stop before we actually eat the bologna sandwich because we, we have this commitment to being really mindful in life. So we just stop at the refrigerator door and we just notice. And if you draw a blank, then just stand there noticing blank as blank, right? Because in a moment, you're going to open that door. And when you open because you're just out of habit, you're, you're see. And then when you start reaching for that door, notice what that is. What is the intention behind you? No human being does anything without an intention. You can't do anything unless there's an intention in the mind. And But the mind does not like to see the mind. It's like, 
we were, Kay and David and I and, and Rick uh, Okada, the, we have an architect who's volunteering his time to help us with the, the design of our new space. And we were looking at the diner, and this diner was built in the 50s, so it's got a lot of sort of greasy kitchen kind of feeling to at least part of the building. And, um, and Rick was saying, oh, we were down in the basement, and there was this old French fry cutter where you put a potato and you push down and the fries fall, the little cut potatoes fall into the bucket below. And Rick, the architect, said, this reminds me how sometimes it's better not to know what goes on behind the scenes. And this is exactly the same with our minds. We do not want to see how we end up doing whatever it is we end up doing. We don't want to see it because we like to live with our projection that it all makes sense. And that, and that there's a, a reasonable, wise person behind all the choices that we make. But it's not that way. <laughs> it's all very primitive and conditional, the way that the mind does whatever it does and the body does whatever it does. And so there, it's, uh, there's like, uh, the mind has this amazing Teflon. When we turn to see it, it's like we get deflected right away from it. So we have to cultivate a very strong intention to want to know the truth. More than anything else on this particular path, we're cultivating an intention to want to know how it is, regardless of where that leads us. This is why a lot of Buddhists like that. It's kind of a silly movie, but maybe some of you saw The Matrix, the first Matrix. And uh, a lot of Buddhists like this movie because that early scene where Morpheus or some Orpheus is talking to the Keanu Reeves character and he, he's asking him if he wants to go down that rabbit hole. Do you really want to know what's going on? Remember that scene for those of you who saw that movie? And you know, well actually we don't know whether we want to know because we don't know what we're going to know. <laughs> and then it's too late. So probably by now it's too late for all of you. <laughs> you already kind of have gotten interested in the potential of the mind looking back in on itself or the heart looking back in on itself. And you realize that although it's really scary and unfamiliar and very difficult, there's an intuitive sense that there's a gold mine and sense of freedom of what's possible of how limited our life is because we haven't opened that door and we get hooked. And once we're hooked, then the, we're motivated to do this very difficult work. And so what I would do, Judy, is just uh, remind yourself uh, that I'm not here to judge myself. I'm not here to fix myself. I just want to know. I just want to know the truth of what's alive in me right now. You know, is it hunger? Is it actual physical hunger that I'm feeling? Is it just mental restlessness? Is it just the desire for sweet flavor? So it's not hunger, but just a craving for that pleasantness? Is it that I'm, I'm uh, angry or there's something I'm afraid of and I want a distraction? You know, it could be so many different things that would compel us to open the refrigerator door and eat something. If you do have a physical feeling, okay, is, is it possible that the mind, though, these other reasons that you were describing were kind of causing the physical conditions, but that wasn't really what arose initially? 
sure. I mean, if we started, if we took the last minute and each of us focused on our favorite food, we would create a physical response. At least some of us, if, if our concentration was good enough, we would create, there'd start, saliva would start flowing, it, and then when the saliva hits the belly, the belly starts to churn, and then we'd go, my God, I am hungry. <laughs> I should eat. Why do you think corporations spend billions of dollars on those advertising that stimulates hunger? You know, and people then, you know, when, and then they see the label at the grocery store and then they've been imprinted, that same hunger response arises and they take that package and they put it in the cart and they buy it. So yeah, the mind and body are back and forth affecting each other all the time. So you see, it's a really rich topic and we'll continue the, the talks and the discussion in the weeks to come. And it, we should have this feeling like it's a great, great adventure and a, and a feeling of gratitude that, you know, we're healthy enough, we have the interest. If you have time to come to Common Ground on Wednesday night, if you have at least enough space to do some practice in your life, and we can be really grateful that we're not overwhelmed by hunger, poverty, war, that we can actually uh, cultivate this practice and maybe uh, really bring some wisdom and compassion into the world. That would be good. So let's just take a few seconds and let go of the words. Maybe take a couple of easy deep breaths together. And just for the heck of it, you can notice the feeling tone now, pleasant neutral or unpleasant, just see. Is the body pleasant, unpleasant or neutral? Is the mind pleasant, unpleasant or neutral? And then bringing to mind our deepest aspiration for this life. So why not live for the benefit of all beings to cultivate awareness and wisdom and compassion for the benefit of all beings, for our own well-being, for the well-being of our loved ones, our colleagues, our friends, and for all beings without exception. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.